today we're going to talk about something that uh, isn't really talked about a whole lot uh, in congregational circles, and for some reason it gets avoided, and it starts with a D. The word starts with a D, and it's kind of like a bad word to some believers. You're thinking, uh-oh, is he going to talk about the bad word? No. But for some believers, the word doubt is a bad word to many believers, and that's what I'm going to be talking about today when we look at doubt in the Bible and how we handle doubt today. You may say, well, what provoked this topic? Well, I've been dying to speak on it for months, and I just I keep forgetting to speak on it, and Howard uh, gave me this opportunity about a month ago, and I said, I'm going to crack it at that day. I'm going to finally do doubt. So we are going to talk about doubt today, and if we're all honest with each other, I hope we all uh, have wrestled with this issue one way or another as we walk with the Lord, and we're certainly going to see today it's all throughout the Bible. Yes, it's in the Bible quite, quite frequently. Um, but first and foremost, let's go ahead and get rid of some of the common myths about doubt. Uh, Gary Habermas in his book, The Thomas Factor, Letting Your Doubts Draw Closer to God, says the following about the common myths that believers have about doubt. Well, first of all, uh, the common myth is that doubt never occurs to the heroes in the Bible, the big names, you know, like Abraham, Paul, uh, Moses, even Yeshua, other people in the Bible. That's one myth. Another uh, myth about doubt is it only impacts or affects the uh, unbelievers, right? Perhaps some of you have been talking to someone about the Lord for a number of years, and they have a lot of questions, and they have a lot of doubts. Uh, that's another myth, that, that it only affects the unbeliever. Uh, Another myth is that uh, doubt is the opposite of faith. Not necessarily, as we'll see in the Bible. Sometimes, but not always. Another common myth is that doubt always means there's a major sin in someone's life. Uh, I can tell you a story. Uh, I have a friend of mine in another state, and I can say this because he's not here. But he said he had asked his pastor years ago, this is when he was growing up in the Lord, and he came to his pastor with some questions about the faith, and the pastor looked at him and said, well, let's get, get straight to the issue here. It's issue. You must have sin in your life. Well, that wasn't the way to handle it. Unfortunately, it turned out to be a disaster. The pastor shouldn't have handled it that way. So that's another myth. Uh, another myth is that there's only one cure for doubt, or only one remedy in every situation. Not, not necessarily. And a couple other myths. Another thing is that doubt is always a negative thing. Not necessarily, as we'll see. And then finally... Another, the final myth, is that God doesn't want his children to be honest about their doubts. No, uh, God wants us to be honest about our doubts with them. So that's just some of the common myths out there. Now, as I said before, sometimes the way we handle this, uh, sometimes when someone comes to us with doubts in their faith, we either turn them away or tell them, well, that's sin, or, well, you just need to have faith and that's it. And we try to kind of maybe oversimplify it, and that creates some problems as well. Uh, educator Elmer Towns defines doubt as the following. He says, doubt is not unbelief. Unbelief is a rebellion against evidence that we cannot or will not accept. Doubt is stumbling over a stone we don't understand. Unbelief is kicking at a stone that we understand all too well. Now, we're going to look at three kind of doubts today, because actually there's different kind of doubts in the Bible. And we're going to look at emotional doubt, factual doubt, and volitional doubt. Now, because we say the Shema every week, we say we talk about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We say, Hero Israel, Lord of God is one. And we talk about, we emphasize that a lot in Beth Messiah, about loving God with all our being. Uh, and actually, heart in the Bible, when you break it down, uh, it really 
represents the whole person. It represents your intellect, your will, and your emotions. So we're holistic creatures. So in some ways, doubt, these issues about factual, emotional, volitional doubt, there's overlap. So I don't want to compartmentalize them and saying just because it's over here, this is the issue. I'm saying they're all kind of interwoven in some capacity or another. But I'm just going to go ahead and bracket them as factual, emotional, and volitional. Okay? But uh, so... Let's go ahead and look at some examples, first of all, of emotional doubt in the Bible. Now, let's look at Matthew chapter 11, and let's go to a big hero in the text, which is John the Baptist. Now, I think for many of us, uh, if you've read the, obviously, beginning of Matthew, but uh, throughout the book of Matthew, we know that John plays a very pivotal role. Uh, We know that in Matthew 11 that we see John at the very front of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel, is responsible for actually baptizing Yeshua. And he even sees the Spirit of God descend upon Yeshua. And he has this uh, dynamic relationship with Yeshua. Obviously, he saw these incredible things about Yeshua. But when we come to John 11, it's a different scenario. Uh, In this this, uh, context here of John 11, John's in prison. And let's go ahead and read here. It says... When John had finished giving orders to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent a message by his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Yeshua replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, those with skin disease are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And if anyone is not offended because of me, he is blessed. As these men went away, Yeshua began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes. Look that those who wear soft clothes are in king's places. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and far more than a prophet, this is the one that is written about. Look, I am sending you my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare the way before you. I assure you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John who has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than he. So it's interesting, you know, that uh, John's in prison here, and he is struggling. You know, he'd had all these experiences with Yeshua, he'd seen these great things, but he actually is going to ask someone to go ask Yeshua, are you really the expected one? Are you really the Jewish Messiah? Uh, now that's interesting, because... John seems to be having a bit of emotional doubt. He's doubting in this context here in prison. Maybe Yeshua isn't the one. Look at my circumstances. I'm in prison. Maybe I'm having second thoughts. And what does Yeshua do as a response for John? Yeshua gives him actually evidence. Yeshua talks about his miracles. And he really looks, uh, he looks to help John really encourage him, right? He doesn't turn him away and say, How can you do that, John? I mean, I've been with you. The Holy Spirit descended upon me. You baptized me. And now you're wondering if I'm actually the Messiah? What's wrong with you? No. He actually uh, responds with uh, some evidence. Okay? So that's an example of volitional doubt. And uh, Yeshua deals with John very delicately and gives him uh, the assurance of what he needs. But the point is that John, no doubt, was a hero of the faith. And even Yeshua goes on here in the text to compliment him later on even after he's having these struggles emotionally uh, with his doubt, okay? Now, if you go over to one chapter over to Matthew 12, since you're right in Matthew 11, and by the way, uh, I'm going to be flipping over to some different scriptures today, so just bear with me, but uh, 
In Matthew chapter 12, it's kind of a different scenario here. Now, the context of Matthew 12 is that uh, Yeshua is dealing with the Jewish leadership, and he's doing these miracles. And we probably know, as you read, I'm not going to read every verse, if you read on into the text, verse 22 and on, that basically Yeshua's miracles are attributed to Satan. And we know that uh, Yeshua doesn't look upon that very lightly. But then in verse, uh, you come down in, in chapter uh, 12, to verse 38, uh, it says here in verse 38 of chapter 12, it says, Some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Yeshua answered them, An evil and adulterous, generous sign, or adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given it except to sign the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Then the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation, condemn it because he repented of Jonah's proclamation. Look, something greater than Jonah is here. Now we have an, a, uh, an audience that is doubting Yeshua's Messiahship, and they want a concrete sign to show them that he's really the Messiah. Now, we know that Yeshua had done many signs in front of his crowds. Actually, the book of John should be called really the book of signs because there's so much about signs in that gospel. But in this instant... Uh, Yeshua's audience really uh, wants a sign, and they're doubting his messiahship. And it, what does Yeshua do? Yeshua only tells them the sign that will be given will be his course, his death and resurrection. He's talking about Jonah here, alluding to his death and resurrection. But the point is, though, that this audience is not so much a humble audience. They're a little more a uh, bit of a testing audience. They're testing Yeshua, right? Not necessarily seeking with a humble heart. And in this case, Yeshua tells them no sign will be given. And that's very uh, interesting today because, you know, uh, we need to understand that miracles in the Bible are done for a very specific purpose. Uh, every time a prophet was raised up in Israel's history, you have Moses, you have Elijah, Elisha, other uh, prophets, mostly those three, uh, God always seemed to do uh, these signs through the prophet to show that this prophet was really from God, right? And you notice the miracles in the Bible are very rare. They only go over certain periods of history. They're not all the time. They're only in certain uh, periods of Israel's history. And every time God was doing something in Israel's history, he would raise up new, something new in Israel's history. He'd raise up a prophet and do the signs through the prophet. And that's, of course, what he does with Yeshua as well when he shows up. And that's why today, you know, when uh, people want signs from God or a specific sign, and we don't understand why maybe miracles don't happen quite today the way they did in the Bible, that uh, miracles are rare in the Bible, and they have a very specific purpose. You know, uh, I had a family member who uh, said to me last year after he saw a uh, presentation at Ohio State we did, he said, he said, you know, why don't we see those miracles today like happened there? And I, he said, why don't we see resurrections? Why don't we see more people rising from the dead? And I'm like, you know, if, if everyone rose from the dead, uh, you know, what would be unique about Yeshua if we just had people rising from the dead all the time? If uh, Uncle Johnny rose from the dead last week and Grandpa Bill rose from the dead next week, uh, it wouldn't be very uh, significant at all, but, the t but you talk about Yeshua. So miracles are rare, at least biblical miracles, and they're done for a very specific purpose, okay? Now let's look at another uh, case of emotional doubt, which has great relevance for us as a congregation, by the way. Not that anything the Bible doesn't. But turn to Romans 11. Romans chapter 11. <clears throat> now if you read Romans 9 through 11, which nobody does here at Bethlehem Messiah, no, right? And we don't teach on it. 
And Chris knows nothing about Romans. He doesn't teach on it, right? No, of course he does at MSI. But uh, we know that uh, as we read through Romans 9 through 11, this is really the chapters that Paul uh, is talking about Israel's present state and their future state. And I believe in these chapters, we see Paul wrestling with God in his uh, plan with Israel. Now, keep in mind that if you read all throughout the Tanakh, as most of you probably have, hopefully we know that Israel had the light. They have the light, and the nations are all supposed to be drawn to Israel. All the other nations are supposed to come to Israel for the truth because they have the one true God. So Israel plays, I mean, they just, they have this major significant redemptive role that all the nations should flock to Israel, right? And Israel should image God. Well, by the time we come to Romans 9 through 11, Paul has discovered that you know what, Uh, there seems to be a little bit of a role reversal here, and that uh, not all Israel has accepted their Messiah, and not all the nations are necessarily flocking to Israel, but it looks to me, as Paul says here, of course, he says now, because of Israel's temporary rejection, uh, that the Gentiles now have a responsibility to be that light and to provoke Israel back to jealousy. So it's kind of like a role reversal here. But Paul says in Romans 11.1, look at Romans 11.1, he says this right here. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Of course, you can go on and read the rest of the chapter. But here we have Paul wrestling with the promises of God. You know, the promise, uh, promises of God with Israel seem to be uh, under attack a little bit, and Paul's wrestling with this. Now, uh, it just so happens, as I may do a uh, little small plug, uh, this Thursday night, see a class? It's called The Rising Tide of Christian Anti-Jewishness, a discussion of supersessionism. We will be discussing that very topic, whether the promises to God are unconditional, or whether they're really built on Israel's conditional obedience. Because if they're not, condition, if they're not unconditional, How do we know if God's promises to us are unconditional? If God uh, doesn't keep his promises to Israel, maybe he won't keep them to us, right? Now, let's look at another case of of emotional doubt. Let's go back to Psalm 10. Let's go in the Psalms for a minute here. Psalm 10. Now, if you read through the Psalms, if anyone has meditated on the Psalms, I think we all know that the psalmist, in many of the Psalms, is quite transparent before the Lord, right? He doesn't hold back how he feels. He pours out his emotions. And he certainly is uh, really being transparent before the Lord. But you come to Psalm 10, and just like many of the Psalms, we deal with what we may call the hiddenness of God. That in some of the Psalms, God appears to just be absent and painfully absent in the psalmist's voice. Look what the psalmist says here in Psalm 10. Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? And err against the wicked relentlessly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. And all his scheming, the wicked arrogantly thinks there is no accountability since God does not exist. His ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments are beyond his sight. He scoffs at his adversaries. He says to himself, I will never be moved from generation to generation without calamity. Cursing, deceit, and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are in his tongue. 
He waits in ambush and he kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes that look out for the helpless, he lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize the afflicted. He seizes the afflicted and drags him in his net. He crouches and bends down that the helpless fall because of his strength. He says to himself, God is forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. Rise up, Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand an account, but you yourself have seen the trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your own hands. The helpless entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil person. Call his wickedness into account until nothing remains of it. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his hand. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully to injustice for the fathers and the oppressed so the men of the earth may terrify them no more. There's a lot of psalms like this, obviously, where the psalmist asks God, where are you, right? And this is something that probably plagues uh, the believer more than anything else. You know, we pray and pray sometimes and pray and seek God and pray, and sometimes God just doesn't seem to be there. You know, uh, perhaps we prayed for a situation to change for months and years and nothing changes. We pray for our family members. We pray for a circumstance, and it just seems like God's absent. What do we do in that situation? Well, uh, for one thing uh, about emotional doubt is that uh, we need to realize those are our emotions. That's why it's called emotional doubt, right? And we all experience these emotional doubts because we're emotional creatures, but uh, one thing we don't want to uh, do is necessarily condemn ourselves and think of ourselves as having weak faith, you know? Uh, sometimes we get that picture that we're supposed to be strong all the time, but uh, the reality of it is that uh, we will experience emotional doubt. One thing to handle emotional doubt is to probably go back to truth, right? Because the cure for emotion sometimes is to be grounded in truth and knowledge, and we see many times throughout the Bible that the Bible speaks a lot about knowledge. It doesn't necessarily always say that uh, faith is a cure for doubt. You know, in Hosea, what does Hosea say? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Uh, Jesus, Yeshua says, you shall know the truth. You shall know, know, know the truth, and it shall set you free. Uh, Yeshua, did, when he did some of the miracles, he said, this is done that you may know that I am the Son of God. The end of the book of John says these signs, these scenes were written so that you may know Yeshua is the Son of God. So knowledge, uh, in many cases, can be a great antidote uh, for emotional doubt, you know, where we saturate our mind in the truth of the Word and uh, get built up in knowledge and uh, telling ourselves the truth and realizing that even if we feel like God's not there, the Bible says He is there, and in many cases, maybe God is uh, just uh, teaching us to wait on him. You know, it's just hard to tell. But one thing for sure, uh, you know, that, uh, that we need to understand is that everybody wrestles with emotional doubt, um, especially if suffering happens. We all know if we've lost a loved one or we've encountered suffering, that uh, emotional doubt is very, very hard to handle. And we need to realize that's part of who we are. Okay? Now, Let's look at a couple instances of volitional doubt. Then the volitional doubt has to do with the choices we make, our will, when we step out and obey God. That's what I mean by volitional doubt, okay? Now, let's go back to, uh, you're in the Psalms, since you're in the Tanakh, let's go back to uh, Genesis 12 with Abraham, another great hero of the faith. 
Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. Now, at the beginning of Genesis 12, of course, we see here that God had come to Abraham and told him he's going to form this covenant with him and uh, make the nation of Israel. And through the uh, seed of Abraham, uh, all the nations will be blessed, right? I'm not going to read the whole chapter. And even before Genesis 12, we know that God had uh, come to Abraham supernaturally, right? And Abraham had this very supernatural experience with God. He knew God was real. And so he had all these uh, things that God had done for him. But then we come to Genesis 12. We come to verse 10. Abraham blows it with his volitional doubt issue. He says here, it says here in verse 10, There was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, Look now, what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. It will kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my, and my life will be spared on your account. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abraham well because of her, and Abraham required flocks and herds and male and female donkeys, male and female slaves and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with severe plagues because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So I'm not going to go and read the whole chapter, but... What we do see here is despite uh, the fact that God had come to Abraham and he had this supernatural experience and a covenant uh, already established, Abraham lies. He uh, fails in his volitional doubt. He lies about, uh, he wants Sarah to lie about being his wife, even though Sarah was his half-sister, about being, uh, he wants Sarah to uh, lie and say she's the sister, wants to perform a lie. Now, that is uh, absolutely true, you know, that in many cases, despite that we've come to know the Lord, that uh, God will challenge us in our obedience, and we have to step out in faith. Faith has to be built and has to start at some place, right, in our lives. What God will do in our lives is he will give us some tests, right? Uh, we may have a small test, and we pass that test, then God gives us a greater test to build our faith. And if we pass that test, even a greater uh, step of faith after that. And hopefully what we do over the course of our spiritual lives is we maybe perhaps journal or take a record or write it down of times in our lives where God challenged us to obey him and how God came through, right? How he, he was found to be trustworthy. Because the many cases where or volitional doubt comes into play is when we simply cannot trust God. We simply say to ourselves, you know, God, I know God says this. I, I mean, I read the word. I know God's supposed to be faithful to his promises, but I still just can't take that step of trust. I just can't trust him. And God is trying to build our faith to help us take those steps to grow in our faith. Faith has to be built one step at a time. Now, for many of us, of course, this can be a struggle, but one of the cures for volitional doubt, of course, is also to know God. Know God in all his attributes. Study uh, who God is, know him, know his ways, know his character, and you will hopefully be able to trust God over the long haul. Um, there was a time in my own life, I remember several years ago, that um, I, uh, I would say I was in a bind uh, financially. I had my own business, and I wasn't sure if this thing was going to come to pass, because if it didn't come to pass, I was sunk, basically. And I was a new believer, fairly new in the Lord, and let's just say that I needed something to happen. I needed something sold. I had this, this, this is piece of real estate needed to be sold, or I was sunk. And I remember praying about it and praying about it, and six months went by, and eight months went by, and ten months went by, 
and a year went by. And finally, it got sold. But, uh, you know, during that time, I remember calling out to God. I was a new believer, and I was thinking, is God going to come through? If he doesn't come through on this, I am going to be in big trouble. And just praying, praying, praying. And then, you know, then I look back on it. Many years later, I realized God was building my faith at that time. Uh, You know, I was learning how to trust God and waiting on God, you know, and waiting on God's not easy, but we're all called to do that, right? Now, there's someone else who struggled a little bit with volitional doubt. And you may say to yourselves, could it possibly be that Yeshua struggled with doubt? Not the Lord, not the Son of God. Actually, if you read uh, Matthew 26 at the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, when Yeshua is uh, struggling with that cup issue, you know, uh, you know, he doesn't say he's going to disobey God, but he was struggling a little bit there, uh, in my opinion, with uh, volitional doubt. Uh, you may say to yourself, well, how's that possible? I'll tell you how it's possible, because Yeshua was a man. We don't talk a lot about the humanity of Yeshua. We only talk about his deity all the time. But in Hebrews, it says he had to become just like us so he could be tempted and understand the ways, you know, so we can, he can identify with us. So I believe uh, Yeshua was struggling with that immensely, as we read in Matthew 26. And if the Son of God or the Messiah can struggle with volitional doubt, isn't that a good example for us, right? That uh, we need to understand it's possible, okay? All right, so now let's look at uh, a third kind of uh, doubt, and that is one of the most common kinds today called factual doubt. Now, we probably all know that uh, the story of John 20 uh, and John 20 of doubting Thomas And Thomas gets such a bad rap, right? Doubting Thomas. Well, if you go to John 20, and that's, don't worry, I'm not going to turn anywhere else after this, but uh, go back to the New Testament. We come here after Yeshua's resurrection. He's already risen, and we know that Thomas wasn't originally, uh, didn't originally see him. But uh, we come to the point where Thomas uh, is struggling, and he wants to see Yeshua, uh, Yeshua's wounds. It says here in verse 24, one of the, but one of the twelve, Thomas, called twin, was not with them when Yeshua came. So the other disciples kept telling him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the marks of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, the disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. And even though the doors were locked, Yeshua came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, observe my hands, reach out your hand, and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever, but be a believer. And Thomas responded, My Lord and my God. And then Yeshua said, Because you've seen me, you believe. Those who believe without seeing are blessed. So here we have Thomas wanting concrete evidence that Yeshua had risen from the dead. He wanted to touch Yeshua's wounds. Yeshua gives him a little gentle rebuke. He doesn't necessarily say, how dare you ask this for me, but I'm going to give you what you need. Touches his wounds. And this is what we deal with a lot of times. It's called factual doubt. Now, Howard has done, what chapter is he on Daniel, by the way? Like, how do you not know? It's because I've been out of town for two weeks. So tell me, where's he at? Chapter 11 by now? Six? Ten? Okay, well, he's on ten. So he's done several messages on Daniel, as we know. And Daniel, of course, was living in a time, uh, living in a culture uh, that was not necessarily embracing his values, embracing his worldview. What we learn in Daniel is that Daniel 
had to take his faith public, right? He couldn't just be a private believer. In other words, yes, he prayed. We read the book of Daniel. We pray three times a day, and he's a model for prayer for us. But, you know, in many cases, as we see, Daniel was challenged to go into the public square, present his beliefs, present his convictions, show what he believed. He really didn't have an option, right? He didn't really have the option to say, no, I don't want to embrace that. I don't want to deal with that. I'm going to go away and just be alone all the time. He couldn't do that. And, you know, for many of us as believers, uh, sometimes we possibly think being a believer just means I pray, I read the word, I go to services, I fellowship, and then I go to heaven when I die. And that's kind of it. Well, no. Uh, The reality of it is that uh, we're living in a similar culture to Babylon. We have the same challenges. People don't embrace our values. They don't embrace what we believe. They don't embrace our worldview. And many of us are in situations or are going to possibly be in situations where we have to take our faith public, okay? Now, we're already called to take our faith public, so that's not even an issue because in the Bible, we're called to take our faith public. It's not a privatized devotion, just a personal relationship with Yeshua kind of thing. So when that happens, when you take your faith public, you will be challenged with factual doubt, okay? Now, I know many of you look at me and you say, well, Eric, you go down to a major college campus and talk to thousands of students and you're in a different place than I am and you hear all this stuff all the time and I'm going to give you a list of what I hear in a second. But uh, all of us, no matter where we are, what stage of our lives, where we live, what job we're in, we're all called to be public believers, okay? We're not called just to hide and uh, separate from the world, okay? uh, The Bible does not teach that. Okay. Now, having said that, I thought that what I would do is quickly show you uh, what we're dealing with today. Now, as I said before, you know, many of you know that we have an outreach at Ohio State. I'm not going to go over all the things we do there, but we've been down there for a number of years. But I thought I'd go ahead and just give you some of the factual doubts that uh, I have heard over the years. Now, I could fill up, actually could go to about here. But I'm only going to give you uh, some of these that I've heard over the years. And don't be depressed. It's okay. I'm going to cover this. But uh, this is some of the things I've heard over the years by people that uh, ask questions about our faith, that have factual doubts. Here's some of them. Uh, We can't know anything really in history. Uh, The New Testament authors are biased. Uh, Yeshua's followers fabricated the stories and sayings of Yeshua. The New Testament story of Yeshua was borrowed from other religions. Uh, The Bible's been translated over and over. We can't trust it. I think Yeshua is some sort of moral teacher, but not divine. I don't think we can take the Bible literally. I can't accept Genesis, as it says the earth is 6,000 years old. You can't accept me to accept a book that condones the killing of innocent people. Why does the Bible condone slavery? Why does the Bible say women are supposed to be in submission to men? How can you accept a book as an authority that says homosexuality is wrong? Evolution has shown we don't need to posit God as an explanation for the complexity of life. Science has a better track record than religion. We keep looking for answers. Your God arguments are are science stoppers. Evolution is a fact, blah, 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 of course. How can you possibly know which religion is true? How do you know your God is the one true God? I just think all religions are true and everyone should get along. I think it's arrogant to say one religion is right. I just prefer to be agnostic about religions. There's no way to know the truth. Why don't we see miracles today? We can't know if the miracles happen in the Bible. Given that we don't see men rising from the dead today, how can you expect me to believe a man rose from the dead 2,000 years ago? There's no evidence for God. I can't empirically verify the existence of God. He must not exist. 
I think religion is just a psychological phenomenon. It's just a function of the brain. There's no proof for the existence of God. I just don't think we can know. I think there may be some kind of force out there. He's in everything. I don't see what difference God would make. I'm a good person. If your belief in God makes you... Here's, a, here's the most common one today. If your belief in God provides you comfort and makes you a better moral person, that's fine, but it does not mean it is true. And that's what we get what's called today moral therapeutic deism. It's everywhere. God is just creates the world, and all he's there to do is to make us moral. Okay, It dominates our young people and dominates the culture. A few more. Why are, why are believers so anti-intellectual? If God exists or created the universe, what caused God? I don't need God to be a moral person. Why are believers so weird? Why are believers so involved in politics? Why do believers have to force their beliefs on others? I see so many believers who profess their faith, but they don't live it out. Okay, so that's just some. Yeah, there's a lot more than that. You're like, God, that's enough as it is. Um, but the point is that, uh, you know, that with the advent of the Internet, uh, you know, it's just a click away from getting some sort of question or doubt about our faith. And the days are long, long gone where we can just pull out the Bible and just open the Bible with somebody. Um, yes, the Bible's still the Word of God. It's authoritative. It's inspired. But uh, the days of just simply using that as the answer to everything isn't just going to work. Now, let me say something about factual doubt, a couple things I want to mention also. Uh, you know, I am really, really, really doubtful that there was, regarding other religions, I just want to give an example here. I am very, very doubtful that there was a, uh, a guy in uh, 6 to 650 AD that had a revelation in a cave that formed a whole new religion. I am doubtful that came from a supernatural source. As a matter of fact, I'm so skeptical, I'm beyond doubtful about that. I'm also doubtful of a religion that popped up in the 1800s, uh, a guy that uh, had two visions from two angels, and now he found the golden plates, and they have followers all over the place evangelizing. I am totally doubtful about that. And the, my point is this. Just like we're so doubtful about other religions and other beliefs, some people are doubtful about our beliefs, okay? So my point is that we shouldn't necessarily scorn them just because they're doubtful about what we believe when we're so doubtful, at least I am. I don't know about you. But I am completely doubtful of uh, a major religion that popped up in the 600s uh, to 650. Yes, I think you know what it is, hopefully, if you know what I'm talking about. It's all over the news all the time. You know, a guy in a cave and everything forming a new religion. And uh, they've got, uh, they're all over the news. Anyway, so I am very, very doubtful about the religions, and we need to be sympathetic with people who are doubtful about ours. Now, when it comes to dealing with factual doubts, uh, there's a few ways to conquer it. Of course, uh, it's tied in, once again, somewhat intertwined with emotional and volitional doubt. But we need to understand that there's good resources that can answer a lot of these questions. And we don't want to take the lazy way out and just tell someone just to have faith, okay? Uh, there's good answers. That's what we call uh, apologetics for, uh, you know, of course, giving or apologizing for being a believer, right? That's what that's about. Uh, no, apologetics uh, provides the reasons, the what and the whys of what we believe. You know, Michael Brown, when he wrote these books, uh, five volumes on answering Jewish objections to Yeshua, he had to write these to respond to all the Jewish people who are sending him emails about, all the, uh, some of the doubts they had, because they were hearing him from their own Jewish people, of course, about Yeshua's Messiahship. So Michael was forced to write five books, only five volumes, you know, and that just goes to show you. But uh, so we certainly have plenty of resources out there that can help us with that. We don't want to spurn someone away, you know, just uh, turn them away and tell them to have faith. And that's something else we have to remember. 
about factual doubt. We're never going to get every single question answered in this life, okay? Because I've noticed something. The more I've studied apologetics, the more questions come. There are more questions every year. They never end. You're never going to get exhaustive knowledge in this life. It's just not going to be, it's just not remotely possible. There are too many resources out there, too many uh, questions, and we need to accept the fact that uh, maybe God knows something we don't. How about that? Maybe God knows some things that we don't know, and perhaps we'll get all our questions answered in the, uh, when we meet the Lord someday, okay? That doesn't mean we can't get any questions answered, but we can never get every single question answered exhaustively. It's just very, very difficult to do that. Okay, so there are answers to factual doubt, and of course, once uh, again, one of the ways to cure factual doubt is to uh, build your knowledge base, uh, and of course, stick with the program. Now, one of the things we need to remember about all doubt, whether it be emotional, volitional, or factual, in conclusion, are five things. Working through our doubts allows us an opportunity to draw closer to the Lord. Believe it or not, it can help us draw closer to the Lord. Doubt can be dealt with if we're honest with God and uh, we don't hide it. Uh, thirdly, uh, when we're struggling with doubt, it's very important to stick with the program. Sometimes and we, don't, we feel like God's distant or we're having emotional doubt, we may just say, you know, I don't feel like going to Beth Messiah. I don't feel like going to services. I don't feel like reading the Bible. I don't feel like praying. And our emotions just dominate us. But in the end, what we need to do is go with what we know. The truth of the word is to stay in the scriptures, stay in community, stay in fellowship, stay in prayer. Do not let your emotions dominate you. They can destroy you, actually. So we need to be able to uh, stick with the program and strive to stick with the program, okay? And the fourth thing, uh, remember, some doubt is connected to spiritual warfare. Believe it or not. Uh, has anyone read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis? There we go. Okay. Uh, we probably know the story there about Wormwood and his apprentice, apprentice there, how they go out and try to put thoughts in people's minds and how to uh, get them astray, call, uh, get them away from God and not follow the Lord anymore. I really do believe that some doubt is connected with spiritual warfare. We need to recognize that and, uh, you know, uh, claim our position in the Lord and, uh, you know, and be strong in prayer. And then, uh, of course, uh, as I said, finally, once again, some of our doubts will hopefully be answered when we uh, come to see the Lord face to face. Now, finally, in conclusion, one last thing is that, uh, you know, we deal with our young people as we're so committed to our young people here, and they come to us with questions please, please tell them that we can help them with those things. And doubt does not just impact young people, okay? It impacts people of all ages, all right? And we don't want to try to just say, well, it's for the young people. No, I, I get emails from people uh, that have been known, known the Lord for many, many years are still wrestling with doubts, okay? So it's, it's just not for young people, all right? So having said that, uh, remember doubt is not necessarily a terrible thing. We can, of course, uh, work through it. We need to be able to be open to it in a congregation, help people work through it, work through our own doubts. And we need to, of course, remember that uh, one day uh, we will hopefully get uh, many of those questions answered. So having said that, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much uh, for the fact that you allow us to come to us with your doubts. And Lord, I pray today that uh, if there's anybody here today that's wrestling with the claims of Yeshua, maybe they're not sure, maybe they have some doubts about whether who he is, his identity, I pray that uh, perhaps you could help them, God, come closer to you to find out that he is really, truly the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah of Israel and the nations. I pray, God, you'd help that individual to find you. 
And Lord God, we pray today to help us to minister to our young people about this and ourselves, no matter what age we're at. And we pray today, of course, Lord God, that uh, you'd help us to stick with the program, even when we're struggling, Lord, with whether you're there or not. Help us to stick with the program and not walk away from you, God, because walking away from you is not the answer, Lord. And uh, we just commit this all to you in Yeshua's name. Amen.